Howdy, everyone, and thank you again for tuning in to the Jeffersonian Tradition. Before we get started, I have a couple of things to go over. For now, the podcast is mostly ad-free, and I sure would like to keep it that way. You can help me out with that by becoming a supporting listener. If you find value in the podcast, there's a link in the show notes page that will enable you to contribute to my work and to help keep the podcast going and keep it light on advertising. Contributions start as low as $0.99 per month, with two other brackets at $4.99 per month or $9.99 per month. If you're not comfortable with a recurring contribution model, I've also set up a Cash App profile for the show. One-time contributions can be sent through Cash App to the show's cash tag, which is $MrJeffersonian, and all of this information will be listed in the show notes page as well. Any contribution amounts help, and thank you in advance to anyone who chooses to pitch in. And if you like the show, then please be sure to subscribe and turn on notifications for it. We are now available on all major podcast platforms. And to help the show grow, make sure to share it with your friends and family. And other show-related news, if there's a topic you'd like for me to cover, or if you just have general questions for me, I can be contacted at the show's email address, which is mrjeffersonian at outlook.com, or through the show's MeWe group, which is also titled The Jeffersonian Tradition. And if you're not on MeWe yet, then seriously, what are you waiting for? Unlike a certain other social media platform, MeWe respects the right to free speech and offers a privacy bill of rights. So if you'd like to be a member there, then download the MeWe app and search for me at the username Mr. Jeffersonian. The show group is private, so we must be contacts before I can send you the group invite. If you're not familiar with MeWe's platform, contacts are the same as being friends on Facebook. With all of that fun stuff out of the way, let's now turn our attention to the topic for today's episode. So today we're going to be starting a new trilogy, uh, this time dedicated to public pensions and the problem with those. At some point in the very near-term future, I do plan on also doing a a trilogy inspired to uh, provide a a Jeffersonian solution to American healthcare, at, at least in the state that it's in right now. So uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. And for today's episode, we're actually going to start off by reading a few headlines from across the country. I'm going to be transparent with y'all. These headlines are not all necessarily super recent. Uh, Some of them go back as far as about 2015, 2016. Some of them go all the way up through last year. I I specifically did that to show you that this this is always a problem, at least over roughly the past 15, 20 years. This this is always a problem because the pensions are just, in many cases, too generous. So, um, again, while they're not all going to be very recent, they are all still very relevant. So first headline is from the Denver Post, and for most of these, I'm just going to read the headlines. We're we're not going to waste too much time trying to read every single one of them, but First headlines from the Denver Post. It says, Wapara is barreling towards its second funding crisis in a decade. The next headline is from the Chicago Tribune, and it says, Despite Rahm Emanuel's tax hikes, city pension debt grew by $7 billion since 2015. From Reason.org, New York City's pension debt could push it to bankruptcy. And just to elaborate on this one, in New York City's case... Right at 75% of its $197.8 billion deficit is due to pension and other retirement liabilities. And also, New York City's two largest public pensions, the New York City Employees Retirement System, also called NICERS, and the Teachers Retirement System, also called TRS, are consuming unbelievably high rates of city tax revenue. 
for nicers, their pension obligations consume 34 cents of each dollar allocated for their payroll. So let that soak in. And if you ever hear people talk about public servants not making enough money, just let this soak in. In New York City's case or nicers case, 34 cents of every dollar they have allocated for payroll is already pre-obligated to go to the pension. For TRS, their pension obligations consume 44 cents of every dollar allocated for payroll. So again, let that sink in. That's almost 50% of the money they have allocated for their payroll system immediately pre-obligated to go to the pension. And and this is why we, you know, teachers, they have to choose, and really public employees in general, they have to choose. They, they cannot have both, right? You can have high upfront wages now and plan your own retirement, or you can take maybe reduced wages now. Um, and you know, who knows if they're actually reduced. I, I actually, I think in most cases, teachers might be a little bit overpaid. Uh, so don't shoot the messenger, but you know, that's my belief. But anyway, taking their stand, they have to make a choice. You can have higher upfront wages now and be on, on your own for retirement planning, or you can forego the higher wages now and say, I'm going to defer this to the back end to make sure I, I am taken care of when I'm not working anymore. So what this means is that people who no longer provide any labor or services for the city are consuming 34% for NICERS and 44% for TRS of the payroll budgets of those agencies. So again, if you want to give current teachers a raise without having to drastically increase taxes, well, that's too bad. Retired teachers are taking 44% of that payroll budget. And then the next headline is from Bloomberg. It says CalPERS, and that's uh, the U.S.'s largest public pension. That's the California state pension. So CalPERS, the largest U.S. pension, loses $67 billion. This one was actually from early last year. Now, those losses were enormous, but by the end of the year, they had recovered all of that plus a little bit. But that was aided by unprecedented funny money printing by the Fed, and that served to help reinflate the stock market. So by extension, all these public pension systems were, were also, in effect, bailed out. And now we're going to have a brief history lesson. In 2012, San Bernardino filed for Chapter 9 bankruptcy. In its court documents, it was noted that 75 to 80% of its annual budget was being consumed by labor costs primarily fire and police funding. However, no small portion of this was caused by the city having to meet its share of the funding scheme for the public pension plan. To try and stave off the inevitable, the city sold off public land and just straight up lied about their annual deficits for years. But by fiscal year 2012 to 2013, they were facing a $45 million projected deficit. Predictably, the city blamed a 2008 financial crisis on the downturn. The city faced unemployment rates of up to 15.7% even into 2012, which resulted in a pretty major contraction of their tax base. And this was a compound issue, so it spiraled, and the labor obligations that had been negotiated by the public unions rapidly began crowding out any other services the city would otherwise provide. So light bulbs for streetlights, leaving public sports fields um, basically untended, so letting them get overgrown. And they had to reduce the city employee staffing by roughly 20%. And, and there were a litany of other issues, but th those are some of the, the most noticeable ones that you would have seen in the moment. 
And also in its request to file bankruptcy, the documents claim that roughly half of the annual municipal deficit is attributed to unfunded liabilities and city's retiree health, workers' compensation, and general liability accounts. The remaining half is attributed to increasing operational cost and the end of union concessions. So at, at its worst, the city actually worked with the public unions to get them to um, basically accept some, some very small pay cuts or benefit cuts, but that came to an end, and the city had to go back to what had previously been negotiated. So... Public pension costs specifically consumed 13% of their general fund budget in fiscal year 2011 to 2012 and 15% in fiscal year 2015 to 2016. So again, just imagine that for the whole city, that that's a huge chunk. I, I know that may not sound like a lot because it's like, well, yes, Mr. Jeffersonian, they have 13% going to this, but that still leaves 87% or 15% and 85%. But you have to think that that's one expense category, and it's taken up 15% of their budget as of fiscal year 2015 to 2016. That is a huge expense. Despite all of this, pension restructuring and or reductions were not included in the city's filing. The city did initially skip out on one year's worth of funding to CalPERS, but ultimately gave in to the legal pressure put on them by CalPERS and gave them back pay in the amount of $18 million after interest and penalties. And for context, if they had made the payments when scheduled, the amount would have only been $13 million. So what they did there um, is essentially for one year, they, they again, they tried to skip out on their mandatory funding of the CalPER system. And that would have saved them, as we saw in 2015-2016, that could have saved them up to 15% of their budget that year and let them kind of reprioritize and regroup to, to see what else they could do to try to get back on a path of fiscal sanity but cowpers and the public unions brought a lot of lawsuits against them and again unfortunately they caved now based on a july 2019 report san bernardino left bankruptcy status in 2017 but annual deficits have started to pile up again with fiscal year 2018 to 2019 having a four and a half million dollar shortfall and the city is now staring down the barrel of another bankruptcy and I have not looked into this yet. Um, I'm going to look and see if they were bailed out in 2020 because of all of, of all the funny money that was handed out. There were some cities. Uh, Chicago was actually one. They were openly calling for a bailout because they were going under the strains of their pension. So I don't know if San Bernardino got any of that. Um, I'm going to have to look into it, but I will definitely make sure to, to update you guys by the end of this trilogy on that. So with that history lesson out of the way, let's let's talk a little bit about why pensions as a concept are bad and, and why they must almost always inevitably fail or end with an implosion. So the first reason is they operate or they function on the same premise as a Ponzi scheme. Namely, you always need more people paying into it than taken out of it. So current retirees can enjoy benefits partially at the expense of current workers. And that that is true. When you get these systems, uh, I think it was Kentucky, and this was back in 2018, I believe, or maybe early 2019. When you have instances where that ratio flips and you have more retirees than workers, that thing starts draining money like, I mean, it's a black hole. And so how is that different from a Ponzi scheme? One of the hardcore elements of a Ponzi scheme is you 
again, you always have to be bringing in new investors so you can pay out the people who came in first. Another hallmark is the people who come into it early generally are going to have way higher returns than people on the back end. So just keep that in mind. That, that's one of their core elements is they function very similarly to a Ponzi scheme. And so the next issue is pension management companies lead people to believe that pensions are safe and guaranteed, but this could not be further from the truth. Due to the modern era of incredibly low interest rates, and at some point we'll talk more in depth about that, but pension funds have had to turn to riskier and riskier investments to achieve returns high enough to maintain the scheme. For individual 401k style accounts or defined contribution accounts, this would not inherently be a bad thing because the individuals who own the accounts can determine what level of risk they're comfortable with. For pension funds, this represents a huge moral hazard because the fund managers are making these decisions behind the scenes, and if a pension fails, everyone involved loses. And just for context, I was looking at Colorado's public pension report from 2020, and they are invested well over 50% in equities. And actually they have, I think it was about 12% in private equity. So these companies, they're, they're not inherently safer. They're investing in the same thing that you would as an individual. It's just, you don't get any control over it. So the only air quotes guarantee pensions can really offer is that if they go bust, the state can just tax the daylights out of the private sector to cover the current payouts, which again is a hallmark characteristic of a Ponzi scheme because it's going to rely heavily on redistribution and accounting gimmicks to shuffle money from one portion of the population into the hands of the other. And so I want to come back to this just real quick. Um, the way a lot of pensions are set up, you have a proxy uh, board, right? So so the the actual pensioners, they will have some very indirect control over what's in the, the pension as far as what the investments are held in, but it's only through their proxy. And when you have these systems, in some cases, they cover well over 100,000 people, you might get a board of seven. And so it's not a very good approximation of what most people would, would potentially be comfortable with. But also a lot of pension recipients, they don't, they don't really pay attention to it because, again, their unions tell them, oh, it's, it's safe, it's guaranteed, you're never going to lose out with this, you're going to be taken care of for life. So another issue is that in the case of public pensions, the Promise payouts are almost never based in any sort of reality. And this has been a huge problem and actually the source of a lot of controversy and finally is starting to get some, some um, attention. So, for example, many public pensions allow employees to count unused sick time, vacation days, and overtime toward their pension calculations. And this can result in massive skewing of what the person should have gotten as many pensions use the highest three-year average salary to calculate employee benefits instead of a lifetime average. So, and another issue is they they assume unrealistic actuarial results. So, uh, in many of these pensions, they will work off of a off of an assumptive uh, rate of return of about seven percent, and that's just that's not the case at all. Uh, in, in many many cases, uh, these pensions are only returning maybe three or four percent. Now, some years you'll you'll have big returns, like for Colorado's, I think it was 2018, if I'm not mistaken, they returned almost 20%. That's great. But when you start looking at their long-term returns, it, it's nowhere near what they're using as their actuarial basis. So there, there again, there's a lot of controversy around that. Thank God it's finally starting to get some attention. 
but there's all kinds of problems with the assumptions that these funds use to determine their level of funding or, or their um, their funding status. And so another issue with these is that any employee hired potentially becomes a 50 to 60 year liability for the employer. And the reason that that is, is it's because let's say, let's say somebody just graduated college and they go work for the County Department of Health. I, I'm just going to use that as an example. If this person is a state employee, um, basically what happens is they get put into this pension system and they have to start contributing money right away out of their own paycheck. But the state also has to get, has to put in a matching amount. And in some cases, the state actually has to put in a, a much higher amount than what the employee does for this. But what happens from there is those contributions, again, they're not just completely sitting there earning interest and they're not in the employee's name. They actually go into the pension fund that's managed by a contracted company, basically a, a monopoly granted by the state. And then that company decides where the investments go. But out of that huge pool, pool of investors or investments, you always have a section of your population who's pulling out of it at any given time. You, you always have retirees. And so it's not an individualized account. That, that's another huge problem, in my opinion, because if you leave, yeah, you might have a vested interest, but at the same time, it, it's not really yours. So the, the reason that the employees become such a long liability is because even after they're gone, once they retire again, they're going to be in that pool now who's pulling the money out of it. So the state's always going to have to keep an eye on having people, um, or excuse me, the state's always going to have to keep an eye on putting money in for the people who are taken out. And then by extension, every single year, just about employees have to contribute an ever increasing amount of their salary. Like in Colorado, uh, there are, are, I think, are five or six different actual um, public employee pension systems, or it, I guess pools would would be a, a more accurate term, but they all go into the same uh, company, which is Para. And so, over the past, I think, four years, every year for state employees, their their mandatory contributions have gone up anywhere from a quarter of a percent to half a percent per year. And actually, I think in 2020 it jumped up by over one percent. I'll have to double check that. But it's um, it's a huge problem. This thing can literally it can never be fully funded because of how it's structured. And I do want to be clear on this. The problem, at least for most of these plans, is not going to be an immediate threat. When we hear pension funds that are 60 percent funded, 40 percent funded, 70 percent funded, whatever, that's actually saying that to sustain their payouts for the future, they'll need to increase funding by 40 percent or risk running out of money. For most of the plans that are in the worst shape, the real problem, again, won't be today. It's going to come within the next 10 to 15 years, barring a stock market meltdown between now and then. Now, the pension plan has a couple of different ways it can achieve its funding goal. The local government or state government can raise taxes to increase the government funding portion. The plan can force employees and employers to contribute a higher rate. It can use erroneously high investment return expectations to fund to fudge the numbers, which we already talked about that. And in the case of Illinois, again, they tried to make an emotional appeal to the general government for a, a direct bailout of their pension fund, specifically for Chicago. And the severity of pension funding shortfalls in some areas come down to this. According, according to a September 2nd, 2020 article released by Forbes, 
Some municipalities are so hard up for pension funding sources that they are putting their own streets that are already paid for up for collateral. This means that these areas are refinancing their streets just to get loans from creditors so they can meet their portion of pension funding obligations. Somewhat unsurprisingly, the areas trying this method of funding are in California and our suburbs of Los Angeles. West Covina is borrowing $205 million against their roads and currently has $200 million in unfunded pension liabilities. Torrance is borrowing $350 million against their roads and currently has $500 million in unfunded pension liabilities. And just think about that. Um, th this would essentially be saying you have a car that's fully paid for, but you also have a ton of credit card debt. So you take out a, a second loan against the car and then you go back out and run up the credit cards again. So take that for what it's worth. But very stupid ideas. These these are called lease revenue bonds, and, and they're horrible ideas. Again, you've already taxed the people once to pay for the streets. Now you're taking out a collateralized loan against those streets, and you're putting a new tax burden for something you've already taxed for. So, I mean, it's, it's a disaster. So we can consider this episode as the primer on why I'm against pensions from a conceptual level. Make sure to tune in for the next episode, and we're going to go over the structure of Colorado's largest public sector pension, which is PARA. And thanks again for tuning in. Please remember, if you find value in the podcast, to consider contributing to the show. You can contribute on a recurring basis through the supporting listener link in the show notes page, or you can make a one-time contribution by using the show's cash app information, which is also included in that show notes page. Any contribution amount helps, and thank you again to everyone in advance who decides to do so. Also, please consider downloading the MeWe app and joining the show's private group so we can have more sane discussion around historical and current political issues. And all right, with another episode in the books, thank you again for tuning in, and I'll talk to you all next time.